BBCC episode 14. Tis the night, the night of the grave's delight, and all the warlocks are at their play. Ye think that without the wild wind shout, but no, it is they, it is they. Hello, hello, welcome back to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, a podcast very high on horror films where you follow a stoner's journey through the subgenres of horror films. I am that one stoner, your host, your boy, Mr. Devon Taylor. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm super excited for today's episode. We have a very special guest. I'm talking about one of my favorite films, Boys in the Trees. It's an Australian film from 2016. Um, It's a a very great coming-of-age film. It's a perennial Halloween film for me as well. I always watch it every October. It's kind of become a tradition for me. And it also just, uh, it kind of puts you in that, like, um, in that senior year of high school mood. So since uh, around this time is kind of a back-to-school time as well, is why I wanted to talk about this movie now. So I had the opportunity to get the director, Mr. Nick Verso, on the show, and I absolutely love getting the filmmakers on the show and just being able to tell them how much I love their film. Like, how fucking cool is that? We had an excellent interview that we're going to get to here in just a minute. Just a couple of reminders. You guys know what I'm going to say. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. These five-star reviews are not for my ego, people. It is to help get the show in front of more ears and join more members of this illustrious club. So please, if you do like the show, go on to Apple Podcasts, rate it five stars, write a nice little review. That would be much appreciated. And also make sure you guys are following me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Bloody Blunts with three O's, just so you can figure out when the show will be dropping. Um, Also, look at the hashtag on Twitter, Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, for anything BBCC related. I don't want to make separate social media accounts, but I do keep track of it with the hashtag. So just make sure you do that because it is just me anyways. I'm not going to make extra social media accounts, at least not now. I I put up a poll, but not too many people voted on it. So I don't think people care (laughs) either way, but follow me there because you will get details on the giveaway that we're doing this month. I'm giving away a Screen Factory special edition Blu-ray of 13 Ghosts, which we have a special 13 Ghosts episode coming up here in a couple weeks. So make sure you guys are following me on social media. Go write those five-star reviews. Now let's go ahead and get to the interview. Alright guys, welcome back to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, and I'm here with my special guest for the episode. Um, He is the director of the film that we're talking about today, Boys in the Trees. All the way from Australia, we are talking to Nick Verso. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, I absolutely uh, love the film that we'll be talking about today. Um, It's become a Halloween staple of mine. I know I'm covering in August, but I'm covering in August because it has that, um, you know, that that school vibe because, you know, August people would be going back to school. I don't know what the plans are right now, but it kind of just like kind of puts me in that high school mindset of so that's where the movies lead me. But it has become I watch it every year since it's come out. I've watched it in October at some point. Oh, that's awesome. I'm kind of glad, I guess. And deep down, I was kind of hoping that's what would happen, that it would become one of those sort of perennial October films like Hocus Pocus and stuff like that. And um, and it's kind of done that, which is great. Yeah, yeah the, the Hocus Pocus inspiration is definitely there. I can I can feel those vibes for sure. 
Um, but before we go ahead and get into the movie so the audience can get to know you a little bit, I just asked you to um, either bring a like hidden gem recommendation or just something you've been watching lately that you really love that you want to tell the audience about. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I am where I'm staying doesn't have proper internet. Um, so I'm just on a dongle. So I haven't been able to really um, stream or, or watch much. So I've kind of been stuck with whatever I had downloaded before mm. I came down here. So it's mainly been TV. So I haven't seen any films in quite a while, but I've been watching like, um, I really enjoyed Devs, that TV show. I thought that was brilliant. And Tales from the Loop on Amazon. So there's been some awesome TV and um, I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole. So that stuff kind of been getting me through and um really cool like gosh yeah we're really lucky to have that stuff right now oh i, I know <laughs> like yeah we are we're are definitely lucky to be like in like the golden age of tv right now as some people are dubbing it you know i mean because there's just so much stuff out there right now like between the different platforms and and i mean you really never run out of stuff and that's why it like TV overwhelms me a little bit. Like that's why I usually kind of stick to movies because it's like, hey, once I watch the movie, I'm done with it. It's all good. But it's like you know, TV, you make attachments with the show and the character, and and then I, I'm a completist, so I'm like, even if I don't like it, I'll sometimes still finish it anyways. And then I feel like I just wasted my time. Like, uh, TV, we have a love hate relationship. I think that's why I'm drawn to the shorter run shows. Like when I heard that I may destroy was half hour episodes, I'm like, great. I'm in, you know, <laughs> like just knowing that it's not like 20 hours, like, uh, and knowing it's okay. So 10 by half hour, cool. That's not too big a commitment, you know, and same mm -hmm. with Tales from the Loop and Devs where they're like, yep, these are probably one season shows. Like I'm like, yep, these are very um, seductive. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely do gravitate more towards like the mini series aspect. And that is also, you know, just a plus with TV right now. Like everything, like it's not how it used to be where it was like, unless it was on a, a cable network, if it was premium, it was always, you know, hour long and it was going to be 18 to 20 episodes and it was like you know so like the the formula has really switched up to where it's like people can do just one season shows or three season shows and then the b eight episodes I, I, that's why i kind of lean like um i like uk series you know like uh they do eight episodes and they're usually like 45 minute episodes that's like that's the sweet spot right there me and my gal just finished up killing eve uh season two of killing eve you know have you watched killing eve at all I've seen season one and season one was great. To be honest, I, I felt so happy with season one. I, I didn't keep going because I was sort of like, you know what? That was great. And I'm good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, it definitely does function that way. Uh, two gets a Season two is a little bit messy. Supporting cast isn't as strong. But, I mean, you watch the show for Villanelle and we get plenty more of that. So, I do yeah. I do enjoy uh, killing you for that. Shout out to Jodie Comer. She's fantastic in that show. Oh, totally. And Sandra O oh as well. Like I'd, it was funny cause I'd never watched Grey's Anatomy. So I only knew Sandra O oh from like her little cameo in Hard Candy. And mm. um, I mean, she's in that film for like 60 seconds, but she still really makes an impression. And so it was so good to see her like center stage. And I was like, oh gosh, how have I not known this actress? Yeah. Yeah. Their chemistry together is fantastic. I absolutely love it. And my hidden gem that I brought I did, I did mention in the email, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but just for the audience as well, have you seen the movie Super Dark Times? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. I absolutely... We, were, we were put together a lot, <laughs> yeah, the you two know, of us. It, it, makes a, it makes for a very good double feature, um, you know, especially uh, your, your film is definitely warmer and uh, a little bit more <laughs> hopeful than Super Dark Times is, because Super Dark Times is exactly what it says it is. But um, but for the audience, Super Dark Times, a movie it came out in 2017, I believe, and uh, it's an adolescent coming of age film where you have this uh, group of very close friends, something very traumatic happens, and then you see how it affects uh, the boys in different ways as they navigate, you know, regular high school relationships and things like that. And um, it's a it's it's very grounded. It's very uh very melancholy very serious um but it, it's a very moody film and i really like moody films and i'd say boys in the trees definitely falls in that category as well but yeah they make a they make a very interesting double feature so i definitely uh, had to shout that movie out before we started talking 
Oh, totally. Yeah. And it really, um, I mean, it also, I think, really delivers on the horror because it's funny, like, Boys in the Trees is sort of horror adjacent, but not really a horror film. Um, like it's kind of a coming of age film for people who like horror films, but it isn't. Whereas like Super Dark Times actually kind of lands squarely in the genre a bit more. So I think, um, yeah, so it's kind of delivers on that front in a really cool way. Yeah, they, they scratch the itch from, from different sides, but I'm glad you went ahead and brought that up. Yeah. So before we get it, before we get into the movie, the opening segment that kind of transitions us into. <laughs> Boys in the Trees, 2016, directed by our guest Nick Verso here. Uh, the opening segment that we get into when we're talking about the films is called the genre grinder. I'm a stoner and I like to grind my weed up and get it all nice and fine. So that's what we're going to do with this film is we break it down into its subgenres a little bit and kind of talk into that and see um, how those kind of play into the film. And like you mentioned, so my first question was like, how horror do you consider this film? And like, I love the horror adjacent. Uh, I do love that phrase. Yeah, so I mean, it's really funny because uh, I don't think I've ever once thought of it as a horror film, you know, or ever ever referred to it that way. Like to me, it was always, you know, a coming of age film. You know, like my references and inspiration were closer to films like Stand by Me or um, like Rick, Richard Linklater films, like Before Sunrise. But I guess as someone who loves horror and who, when I was that age, especially, just absorbed them constantly, I think. Yeah, the horror, this light horror wrapper sort of kind of wrapped itself around my coming of age story and it sort of became, yeah, it kind of became this, um, yeah, I, I guess it's light horror. So it's not yeah. like a full-blown scary film or, yeah. you know, there's no scares or, or blood or anything like that. Um, the next one will be. But, um, but uh, yeah, no, this one was much more me um, coming of age. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, yeah, the, the coming of age definitely does come forward in this. And then I put it in like that kind of that dark fairy tale camp almost like I do mm -hmm. kind of like because there's a lot of storytelling in the within the film that we'll get to here in a minute. But um, so I put it in that like dark fairy tale aspect where, you know, like coming of age movies, like in the style that like Tim Burton would have kind of did, you know, back in the day, kind of that uh, that vibe to it. And and that's what I do love about just like, you know, the, the horror genre in general. And then, you know, like you say, kind of horror adjacent movies is like that's where you can kind of take the, the standard coming of age formulas, you know, but are able to kind of bring in different emotions and aspects that you wouldn't be able to do in a traditional just straightforward coming of age movies as we kind of see with some of the um the storytelling and supernatural elements uh that are sprinkled in through boys in the trees yeah yeah totally and that was i mean i guess you know growing up in the 90s like you couldn't escape the influence of Tim Burton. Like he meant so much to me as a kid, you know, like, and, and like his run of films from like Beetlejuice to Sleepy Hollow is just, just the best, you know, like mm -hmm. just what a amazing, amazing films. And so I just, yeah, he was a God to me when I was a kid. So yeah, it wasn't surprising that when I was looking back on that time, you know, his, his uh, sort of films would, I guess, influence what I was saying and doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like how you said, like, it, I mean, just, yeah, that run in the 90s, it was just too hard to get away from him. That is just like your kind of sensibilities, because I was the same way. Like, Tim Burton has had such a huge impression on me throughout the years and um, the stories that I gravitate towards. So um, I really love that those inspirations do come through uh, pretty, pretty bright in Boys in the Trees. So to give the audience a little quick synopsis of the film is um, Boys in the Trees follows a group of boys, obviously. Uh, it's a very adolescent teen film, and you it's around Halloween time. They get a little break before exams, and uh, we meet Corey, our protagonist, who he's in a group of very rowdy boys, and you can tell he's just a little bit different from them, and he doesn't partake in the bullying and as much of the shenanigans as uh, the rest of his uh, friends do mainly his best friend Django. They have very just different ideas, but he um, does what he has to do to fit in, in the words of Corey himself. And then he um, we, he comes across an old friend, Jonah, who the group bullies, and they have a moment together, and basically 
Corey ends up spending Halloween with Jonah instead of his other friends because they kind of relive some old memories and things of that nature. So you also wrote the film. You also edited the film. So you're you definitely there is a very personal stamp on the film, which I which I really enjoy, which is amazing that you got to do that. So how did um, how did it come about when you wrote the script for the film and then when you started shopping around to be able to make it? Yeah. So I originally I spent a lot of my 20s working on a very different feature film script Um and I put all my eggs in that one basket. I was just like, this will be the film. And, and so I, and so I spent many years and we kind of started casting and we, and then when in Australia, our film industry works in a slightly unusual way, well, quite different to Hollywood where we pretty much just have the one funding body. Like if mm. you want to get a film made in Australia, there's really only one place to go and that's screen Australia. Um, okay. And when we took the film to Screen Australia, this and this was a very different sort of film. It was very poppy, commercial, teen rom-com, closer to a film like Pitch Perfect or something like that. And this okay. would have been 2010, I think. Um, and so I remember taking the film into them. And and so this our cast, they weren't all 100% confirmed, but the cast that we were proposing, um, Screen Australia hadn't heard of. And um, and so that cast was Liam Hemsworth, Margot Robbie, Ruby Rose and Sia Furla writing the music and they hadn't heard oh, of wow. any of them. And oh, wow. so they kind of killed the film. Like they basically went, we will never make this film. And it really devastated me because I didn't have a plan B. You know, like I had just put all my attention on this one film and I was truly crushed, you know, like because I honestly thought this film was going to happen and then it didn't. Mm. And I was like, I, it really, I went in a real downward spiral and then... I guess I needed to just get myself better, you know, like I needed to somehow um, get out of my rut. And mm-hmm. so this story started coming, you know, and, and it was sort of, it was like these boys were sort of gathering around me to look after me. And, um, and so I wrote it pretty quickly and then I wasn't going to do anything with it. I was just like, oh, this just, this makes me feel better. I've written it. I'll put it in a drawer and move on with my life. And then I'd written another film, a true crime film that was also set in 1997. And I was trying to sell that. And in the meeting where I was trying to sell that to Mushroom Pictures, somehow Boys in the Trees came up and they weren't interested in my true crime at all. And Boys in the Trees was the one they were interested in. And so they bought it kind of immediately. Like that was the one. And so, and they were like one of the first people to read it because I wasn't sending it out anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, and I couldn't believe that that was the one that everyone believed in. And so, yeah. And then it took a while to get the financing, but it did. And, and they truly believed in me and, um, and gave me the support. And then the editing thing kind of came out of necessity more than anything. Like we had a really low budget and couldn't quite afford an editor. And I actually love editing, you know, and I come from an editing background. Mm-hmm. So, um, it made sense for me to edit it. Um, and i I'm, I, I would do it again on certain films, but then on others, I, I do love working with an editor. So mm. I, I almost would prefer to have an editor with me now because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, it's such a, a wonderful collaboration when you've got a good one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just a lot of workload, you know, on top of your, uh, on yourself as well. So I totally. Especially after a shoot when you're just exhausted. Like I remember the edit was, it was such a weird period because it's such a personal film and then there's me just alone in this room sort of grappling with what I just shot. And, um, yeah, so it took a while. But, um, but yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that it's it just kind of came, it must have just kind of came out of you like the screenplay because you weren't putting that pressure on you. So it just kind of naturally eased out of you. And I like how you uh, said that, you know, it was you used it as comfort, you know, like these characters were kind of comforting you going back into that nostalgia of really putting yourself back in that mindset of, you know, that, that last year where it's truly carefree, you know, before you're, you're off into the, the serious world. I just love, I love the story behind it. So I, I, the first note that I had was that I really love, um, you know, kind of the storytelling within it. It, it's very much about these kids that, you know, used to play this game where they're making believe and making up these stories as they go through different places. And then you kind of incorporate uh, like these different poetry aspects into it as well. So like, where did that original, um, 
the 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 tis the night like little verse was that something that you wrote or does that come from oh, no, no. that's an old poem from like I think the 1800s so yeah it was really funny it very very early on as I was writing it I realized the stories we tell ourselves and, and the way we kind of make sense of our world was a very big part of it um and so yeah so storytelling just became a really key part of it very quickly and and, and the sort of game of making up stories as you walk home from school was something I actually did with a friend in primary school. Um, mm-hmm. There was like a path we took. And so we didn't call it Kikaitis like they do in the film, but um, but we were doing that thing where we'd point at houses and make up stories about who lived inside it and people we'd pass. And, and so, I, and I loved that idea. And I guess the two films that sort of influenced that were, you know, Stand By Me again, where he sort of tells the pie mm-hmm. story in the middle. Mm-hmm. And the other one was um, The Company of Wolves, the Neil Jordan film. Like The Company of Wolves has always been one of my favourite, favourite films, a really underrated little gem of a film that isn't spoken about half as much as it should be. And, um, and the way they use storytelling in that, I always thought was super interesting and beautiful. So that was a big influence. So, yeah. I said lots of wolf references <laughs> uh, across this movie in general. Yeah, well, that was it. Like the wolf thing sort of came up pretty quickly of just... Um, yeah, I don't know where it, exactly where it came from, but I guess, yeah, the, the the whole, you know, running with the wolves and what pack are you in just sort of came up and, and I just thought, well, let's lean into that, you know, and embrace that. And then, yeah, and the company of wolves then became a big thing. So, um, yeah. yeah, so that all kind of fed into it, especially, you know, like the precious, I guess I'm really interested in why guys are the way they are you know like the lessons we're taught and especially in this moment where we're grappling so much you know with male behavior and you know what we've what we've taken for granted in the patriarchy so I guess I really kind of wanted to explore some of that toxicity as well you know some of the really bad lessons and bad behaviors yeah yeah Uh, I, I wrote an article last year on the film and it was pretty much touching on the 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 coming of age, but with a specific scope of, you know, the, the masculinity aspect that comes into it. And like you said, just like, yeah, why are guys the way they are? Like, why do we like why do guys just like jump on each other for no reason all the time? Why do they uh, feel the need to impress one another with you know stories of what they did with what girl and, you know, just like the just the way that they interact. And it's like, you know, like. When, when guys are like, you know, mean spirited to each other and pe- and you say like, why are, why are you mean spirited like that? And people have always just played off as well, you know, boys will be boys. It's just kind of the way it is. And I like that, you know, Corey does kind of, you know, question that, you know, why, you know, uh, he's, you know, bullying an old friend of his just for the fact of, you know, fitting into the pack. And it's just, yeah, I, I love all the different questions that um, it really does bring up and how each story almost is like kind of like a, a another chapter in the book as we kind of go along and Corey continues to like learn those lessons or almost like a video game even as well. Like, you know, he's like yeah, you know, yeah, going through the yeah. levels and each achievement through each story is, you know, kind of another lesson that Corey's learning. Yeah. Well, no, totally. And I, cause I went to an all boys school as well. So like oh. I was really, you really got to see it at work just the way the sort of hierarchies and, and the little power plays that guys do amongst themselves and yeah. And just certain fears, you know, and a lot of it's homophobic and so a lot of it's related to emotions and feelings and how do you deal with them? And um, so, yeah. And it was really, I mean, the making of the film, what kind of came out for me that was sort of that I wasn't expecting was how much the film was really more about Corey and Django than about Corey and Jonah. Because mm-hmm. on the surface, you think it's, oh, yeah, it's it's about Corey and Jonah's friendship, but it kind of isn't. It's actually more about how's he going to um, sever himself from Django. Yeah, it's uh, it's like I that's the kind of the way that I looked at it was like, you know, Jonah was the the most important lesson overall that Corey kind of need to learn in in terms of uh you know moving forward dealing with uh, you know taking accountability for his actions and the way that he what he's done in the past the way he comes off to people you know as um as the love interest character I forget her name um you know points out to him you know like you're such a different person when you're not 
around them. Like even when Corey is just 15 feet away from his friends, he's a completely different person. So it's like, just like, yeah, I totally love that aspect. And, you know, cause literally from the very first scene, Django is just all about himself. Like from the very first, like line of dialogue he utters and, and, and it is, and you, you just kind of, you see that dynamic between them and you can tell it's like not a healthy friendship. And you sit there and wonder why would Corey still be friends with him? And it's just like, that's, it's just the way that guys kind of have operated. It's just, it, it, it's very strange. And well, yeah, it was a really funny thing as well, because our funding uh, screen Australia, uh, there's a lot of, um, middle-aged women who are the sort of tastemakers and gatekeepers there and so the script was being passed around through you know women in their 50s and 60s to assess it and you know they're not the audience like I was saying like you don't give the best exotic marigold hotel to a 10 year old boy to assess you know like that's not who it's for and so and they hated the script and one of the notes that kept coming up is oh we hate this character of Django. Like, why would anyone want to spend time with him? I wouldn't want my son spending time with him. And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> like, but your son will hang out with a Django. At some point, every boy knows Django, you know, and you will have someone like that in your life. And no one, I never for a second wanted you to love Django. Like, but I just wanted to present him honestly. And and sometimes you like him, most of the time you don't. And and Justin, who played him, was just perfect. Like, he just got it. Like, he understood the character so well. Like, he knew it better than I did. And he was always actually raising things. Like, I would sometimes have to, like, tweak dialogue and action with Django because Justin just had such a good sixth sense for when it was authentic or not, you know. And, yeah. um, and he would add little things and do little impros that none of us were expecting, and they were always great always so right for the character oh yeah he was he was fantastic i remember the the first time i saw this film which i saw it at the overlook film festival so i saw it like a little bit but so i got to see it a little bit before it um before it hit i remember um a good friend of mine alicia malone another uh aussie she was like oh my god everybody you guys need to see this movie and she was singing the praise of your film like the whole festival and um (laughs) But the very first time that I saw it, like Django was like that magnetic character, like Justin's performance was like it, it, it is that that combination of the charm on top of on top of just all the, the nastiness that he has. But that is like the way those people work, like, you know, they, they do they charm you when it's necessary to for your friendship to manipulate you. But then, you know, their true colors always do come out. And um, the the dynamic between him and uh, Toby Wallace was just like really great. Toby was amazing in this film too. Oh yeah, no, like Toby's the greatest. Like I, I truly love him with all my heart. And it was so funny because we were we made the film in Adelaide, which is you know like a smaller city in Australia, and no one, none of the cast were from there, so mm-hmm. they all had to fly over, and they were all put up in this hotel. And so I think art and life were becoming very blurred and intermingled because. I mean, because Justin had really put himself in the character, so he was kind of off screen being a bit of a Django as well while we were <laughs> filming and he and Toby were just getting up to real mischief on the weekends, which I found hilarious. And I, I loved it because it just it made their bond on screen so much more truthful, you know, because mm-hmm. they were really doing that. Um, but it sometimes caused grief for other members of the <laughs> cast. But I kind of was like, yeah, it was fun watching them really play and really kind of get into it yeah yeah kind of you know as you got to you writing this film kind of put you back in that you know nostalgic comfort zone like you know it's great that the actors could kind of also get in that zone of you know being a kid again and that you know that mentality and uh they were yeah super great together so I wanted to talk about um, also the music. Um, there is uh, tons of fantastic music. I understand you have a DJ background, correct? Yeah. Well, that, and that was the other funny thing was I, and so I've DJed for years, but one of my most successful ventures as a DJ was starting a 90s night. You know, I started mm-hmm. this nostalgia retro 90s thing and it became like one of the biggest nights in Melbourne and it ran for 13 years. And so it was kind of, and I'd been running it for a while when I started writing Boys in the Trees. So I think it wasn't surprising that the film ended up becoming a 90s film. Because originally when I first started mm-hmm. writing it, it was set modern day. And then I reached about page 10 and all the technology was getting in the way, like YouTube yeah. and mobile phones. Mm-hmm. And- 
email. I was just like, oh, this is so uninteresting to me. Um, so I just decided to just go back to before all of that. And that became a big part. So, yeah, so the music was key. And pretty much every song you see in the film was in the script. Like I would write the songs mm-hmm. into the script. And that actually became because it's really funny. They often tell they tell you not to do that, right? Put songs in. <laughs> oh, they're expensive. They'll freak people out. Well, to be honest, okay. So I reckon that's such bullshit. And here's why. So Mushroom Pictures, who produced the film, so they have they are also a, a massive record company, and um, it's owned by this guy Michael Gadinsky, who's kind of like Australia's Richard Branson. He's this huge entrepreneur, and he became wealthy by becoming like, he was like a David Geffen in the seventies by starting this record label. And what was fascinating that I didn't know when I gave the script to mushroom pictures that became the, probably the reason they bought it is half the songs in the film he owned. So he already owned like garbage milk and Bush glycerine and dinosaur junior feel the pain. Hmm. So because he owned that, we were able to use them very, very cheaply. And um, because it was all in the family. And then um, when we then went to the other musicians who he didn't own, like Marilyn Manson and Ramstein, we could already go, you know what, we've got this song in it. So, you know what I mean? It's kind of like inviting people to a party where no one wants to be first. You can convince people that cool people are already there. You're more likely to get other cool people to rock up. So, um, and that's kind of exactly how it worked. And then, <laughs> I remember Gadinsky's like, he's great. He's a really kind of gruff guy. And when he first saw the film, he came up to me afterwards and he goes, that Yoko Ono song, never heard of it, but you really like it, don't you? If she gives you trouble, you put her on to me. And I'm like, yep, if, if Yoko Ono gives me trouble, I will put her on um and she certainly did it like she uh, kind of agreed immediately and like I was like yeah no she's she's not a troublemaker <laughs> yes, <I laughs> Yoko Ono is not a troublemaker yes I could she's, I could not imagine her Yoko Ono out to sabotage your film just being like no like just I don't see exactly. it that was the cue I kind of most wanted that Yoko Ono song um and so I was so nervous because that was also the one cue I think in the film where I didn't have a backup plan like I didn't have mm. a, a B song so mm. I was just like, oh, it's this or nothing. Um, or I rethink the ending of the film. Yeah, and no. luckily she immediately came back and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. not have been just like it would have just made the whole mood. So you did have like a lot of, I like that you did have, so you had like backup choices just in case if they weren't able to. But Yeah, and to be honest, there's only a couple moments. I think there's like two or three times where I had to go to my B song and they always ended up being better. Mm. So at one point it was funny like there's the Gary Newman down in the park and I originally didn't put that as an A because I thought it would be too expensive and then it turned out to be much cheaper than the one that I had kind of compromised with and so I was like oh great well that's good and then there was a Metallica song and then but then we went with Bush Glycerine which was a thousand times better nothing against Metallica they would have been great Mm -hmm. but Bush Glycerine it's really funny when I was doing the festival circuit, that was the moment I could feel the audience settle into the film. Mm-hmm. Like there was something about that song that really worked. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this song actually does a lot of heavy lifting in the film. So I was really glad it was there. Yeah. The, the Gary Newman one is definitely my favorite uh, track on the soundtrack for sure. I absolutely love that song. Um, oh, cool. And I also, I do love, um, you know, a lot of people have used uh, Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson in their movies or for various things, and you did it one of the best ways. I absolutely love the the shot of you know them on the bicycle in the slow motion. Django's got the, the flare smoke coming from him. I mean, it's just, ah, it's so gorgeous. Like, absolutely. You know, it's like uh, that, that music video almost presentation can, you know, obviously not work for a movie, like, very easily. But just for the fact of like, you know, how carefully curated you had each song like to the beat and setting like the whole for the for the era that it was taking place in as well, just like worked out just like it felt very, very natural, especially with just like some of the style that we would see with um the the storytelling aspects as well. Yeah, there is a bit of a music clip kind of vibe to the film, because I guess you know, the nineties was so inspired by MTV. Like it was, mm-hmm. you know, those music videos were kind of a bit of a backdrop to a lot of things for teen culture. And it's funny, like that was the hardest song in the film to get that Marilyn Manson one. Um, he kept saying no. And 
I eventually had to write in this very, very long letter. And everyone was going, this letter is way too long. Just <laughs> and I'm like, no, I get one shot at this. I'm just laying it all out. And I sort of wrote, explained exactly why I needed this song and what the song meant to me. And because I got it as well. Like, I mean, he got so much shit in the 90s and got blamed, you know, for a lot of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that was just because everyone was looking for an easy scapegoat. Yeah. And so I think he was probably he's probably very protective of his catalogue for that reason because people misinterpret and love to demonise him. And I was kind of trying to do the exact opposite actually and kind of, you know, because he is a bit, he, yeah, like his legacy mm-hmm. isn't, there's a lot of artists from the 90s whose legacy isn't as honoured as I feel it should be, you know. Like you think of his cultural impact at the time was massive, yeah. Yeah, especially in that in that 90s era, yeah, a lot of, uh, alternative artists were getting like you know pushed you know put push blame for like you know events that were going on in real life and like things like that so like you said just like the influence of mtv was like so heavy at that time but i absolutely do love the the presentation of the film um from that oh. aspect and the the last thing that i did want to touch on was so i love um just kind of the way that you know kind of you said um even though the film isn't really about Corey and Jonah, but the, the way that that element was done though, was really good. I, and especially with the, the reveal at the end, which comes very, very naturally, you know, when you like, just like come through the end, they've been going through this evening together. And then we find out that Jonah has been dead the whole time, even though his costume was a ghost and we see all these other moments and just some of the things he says as well. Um, you know, it, it didn't, it doesn't feel like a twist because you were never being dishonest or disleading. You were, you you put all the clues out there and I absolutely love like whenever, um, something is built up in that way, but then yet it's still just like that little gut turn when we figure it out. And then you watch, you know, when you're figuring it out, watching the memorial service and you're kind of putting all the pieces together, like. Ooh, that gut punch! Like it, it does get you. It, it gets you right, right there, and I, and like every time too. It's like I know it's coming every time, and I'm like, oh, Jonah, not again. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's a funny thing because, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things was I was, I, I almost didn't want it to be a twist ending, and I think, but it, it ended up sort of becoming one. Like, I mean, so I love, uh, like the Sixth Sense and Fight Club. You know, I think that's two great films but I always felt a little cheated by them Mm -hmm. because they both have little moments where they kind of lie a little bit you know like Mm -hmm. they're so determined to hide their twist that they they're a little untruthful and I didn't Mm want to do that and there was it was really funny in the development of the script there were a couple of moments that bordered on cheating and I was just like and we would really discuss them and and they would ended up being cut because it's like, that's not fair um, to do that to the audience because you're really misleading them. And I didn't want to do that. And I kind of was happy for the audience to work it out when they did. Like a lot of people work it out around like the convenience store, 7-Eleven sequence. Mm-hmm. And and I was kind of quite happy for people to know it then. And I was happy if they worked it out earlier or happy if they worked it out then or at Day of the Dead or wherever it was. But yeah, there is something where I think deep down the audience are just hoping against hope that even, you know, that maybe there's a happier ending coming <laughs> or that there might be another solution. Um, yeah, unfortunately there wasn't. And it's, it was interesting in many ways that that ending, that's where it all started, you know, like the first day of writing the script. Um, so my best, one of my best friends, Wendy, who plays the weeping woman who sings the song in the Day of the Dead mm-hmm. uh, sequence. So she used to live in this house that, um, overlooked this parkland and um, and she was having a, a party at her place and I wandered out the back at night and if you go through the parkland that leads to this reservoir and I was sitting by the reservoir because um, a skater had just murdered his girlfriend and dumped her body there um, and like two days earlier and so and it was kind of quite famous and I just the feeling of her body in the water I, I could feel it I don't know there was something like I, I sensed her presence or something and just the the sadness and the the loneliness of all of that yeah and also the, that reservoir historically is just kind of fascinating in a, in Melbourne because we even though we shot in Adelaide you know it was written or based around this reservoir in Melbourne because it was also where the Treaty of Melbourne was signed which is where we sort of essentially took the land from our Indigenous people and lied to them you know so it was always this place of 
kind of betrayal and this place of sorrow death, essentially and and like yeah exactly truly and and it's really interesting like and if you look at the history of the area bad shit always happens there mm. like there's always like a stabbing or there was like a mental hospital and then there was like a cemetery and you know like all this yeah there's just grief in the in the earth and um so i guess that was the feeling that started the film you know it was that scene and then i kind of worked backwards from there and um and I, I think that's why the skate culture sort of merged into it, even though it, there's no girlfriend being killed or anything like that. But that um, that vibe, I guess, just sort of came into the story yeah. as I was writing it. Yeah, and it it does uh, it does come through very eerie in the film because like kind of how these this tunnel like kind of connects between all these different places in the neighborhood where all these things have happened. So it's just like, you know, it's like one of those type of things. If you like put a map on top of like in another movie, like in like a Goonies, like, you know, the kids type movie, they would like put a map down. Then they'd put like a see-through map on top of that. And then they'd be like, see, it's all the, it's all connected. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And I got them to, because it's actually like the path that they take is a path you can take. And I got them to do it as a rehearsal thing. I sort of sent them out one night to do the journey and gave them all like the cross points of where, different places where <laughs> ah that's really cool that would have been like a cool like promo thing like promoting like a scavenger hunt like along along the way or something like that that'd be like that's do it for the 10 yeah. year anniversary there you go 10 year anniversary do <laughs> exactly. like a, a like scavenger hunt through i think that'd be so fun reliving it all yeah no it was a good way for them to bond i think was just to send them out and go all right do the walk make mm-hmm. make some memories yeah yeah make some memories absolutely love that and it's and it and like you said, I I do love how you said um you know you you know that the the sad ending's coming and you kind of hope against it, but then as far as like when it comes to like these kind of coming of age stories, it's that moment that like you know that Corey needs to kind of get over that emotional hump, you know that he's kind of in and that really puts everything into perspective and and we do still get like Anna gives for a little moment for Django to kind of be there comforting him whenever Corey didn't think that anybody was gonna come to comfort him so so it's like you know Django gets his nice his his moment there for a second but it is uh that kind of moment of realization of Corey that like kind of snaps just like everything into perspective for him and and it's you know and that's just kind of a sad truth in life that sometimes you need those kind of events to kind of, you know, kick you in the ass and kind of wake you up a little bit. And then, you know, you learn and you grow on from that. Yeah, totally. And, and that was also the last scene we shot. And so I think by that point we're all just so tired and there was something beautiful about sort of doing, everyone was sort of saying goodbye to each other and, and you know what it's like. They were, they were 18 year olds who'd been kind of like on summer camp for five weeks, you know, during the making of the film. So, you know, that they were saying goodbye to each other and yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I, I really uh, love what they did in that final scene and, and yes, and it felt very true to what I know of the world. Yeah. Sometimes grief does really change you. And, and, and it's why there's that little epilogue as well. Cause I wanted people to know that he, he carries it with him. Like he didn't, just Mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't sure about the epilogue they're like oh it's not needed I'm like oh no it is I wanted people to know that Corey's never going to get over this like he's always it's always going to be carried with him um Mm -hmm. and that was really important to me that people know that it's not just like one night and he gets on Mm -hmm. with his life that it's a lifelong thing yeah Yeah, that's how that's how it would have ended if it were if it were a traditional more horror-centric film I feel like that's kind of the way what happens in more horror films is like everything happens and all this craziness yeah. and then it just and, and it's done it happened and you know there's there's nothing that happens after that so yeah i really do that um i do like the little epilogue at the end just so that way like you said like he's carrying a piece of jonah with him literally but like taking that lesson truly to heart that it you know was something that mattered to him and happened and you know that he's not gonna forget and I really love the the way that you describe, you know, you said like the the end of filming for your movie felt like the end of summer camp. And um, I had uh, Todd Strauss-Schulson on the show a few weeks ago who kind of described like the exact kind of thing as well. So it's like I love when you can kind of build that that atmosphere within the cast and the filming. And like you said, you kind of shoot that scene last because it's like the cast has been through all the things together now and 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 it just it really does bring out that like real genuine performances out of them and 
um i really do love your your direction just overall on top of the film oh thank you no they were just they were such a bunch of sweethearts those kids you know and and it was because you know we had like the grommets who were all sort of all i mean it was such a surreal shoot for them because they always would have to just wait until it was time to do their shot and it was always mm-hmm. inevitably at like 4:30 in the morning where we would have to suddenly quick we're running out of time the sun's about to rise we need your shots you know and so they would have to suddenly wake up and run down to set and do hit it perfectly take one and they always would um but yeah no they were and then you know Mitzi was just beautiful as Romani and and because she was really the only girl on set most of the time yeah. but she everyone of course fell in love with her and was um she could always hold her own and um she yeah, became no, one they of were the just boys. so much fun to watch sorry said she became one of the boys Oh, totally. And she is like, she's, she's one of those girls who's very good with that. You know, she knows how to, you know, get the wolves eating out of the palm of her hand. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It obviously needed, like you said, like whenever the boys get a little, a little too close and make it, make it a little too real for everyone else. But I absolutely love that. And it, it definitely comes through all the, the, the genuine, um, interactions between the cast and just all the emotions that does evoke. It really does take you back into that into that time of your life whether that was in the 90s or not but of course for me it like kind of just hits there as well and the the nostalgia and it's it that's why it's a great movie for me to revisit because i like those movies where it's like you know what i'm gonna go i'm gonna go hang with Corey and the boys you know and listen to the spooky stories a little bit you know and and i i just kind of sit in it and enjoy it and um it's it's just very easy to slide back into so I really do appreciate this film. So what is on the horizons next? You said you had something bloody uh, in, in the works. Oh, yeah. Well, so, so there's one I'm in casting for at the moment that's a full horror film. You know, it's a full right in the hips, lap bang in the middle of the genre horror film. And that's really fun. And I've been working on it for a couple of years to get the script right. And we it's good now. So now we're just, um, we were hoping to shoot this year, but Corona. So, um, so it's probably not going to shoot until next year now, but um, we, the, the cast who are interested are all phenomenal and great. And so we're just trying to make it all work schedule wise and, and secure the last bit of financing and that'll be good to go. And so that'll be really fun. But I've also just done a little TV movie for sci-fi, um, mm. which will come out for Christmas. And that, Ooh. if if you want stoner horror, this is for you. Like the more edibles or shrooms you have before you watch this, like this is a film designed for <laughs> to oh, be yeah. consumed. Yeah, it's mental. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous film, but a lot of fun. Um, and so that will, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it, but it, it's going to come out for Christmas. It, we were able to shoot it luckily just before all the lockdowns began. So we shot it in Canada in January, February, and we're just finishing off the visual effects now because there's a lot of stop motion animation in it. Um, but it's a Christmas horror film. And I think I want to do like a film for every holiday, you know, like I've done my Halloween film. So now mm-hmm. I'm doing a Christmas one. And so um, what, what's the next yeah. holiday on your is, list then? I don't know. Well, there's one I'm, I'm I'm attached to that's like set on a prom night. So that's, I guess, kind of a holiday, you know, like the prom night of it all. Mm-hmm. I, I I was going to do one set on July 4th, but that fell apart, unfortunately. But, you know, I'll keep working my way through the holidays somehow. I'll work them in there. <laughs> I love it. Um, but, yeah, so hopefully Sci-Fi Christmas, that'll be a fun one to look out for and, um yeah, and it, it all just happened really quickly. Like literally, I got the script in mid December, and three weeks later, I'm in pre on in Canada. So it all just yeah, it's a very different kind of film, but it's I think it's a hoot, and I think a lot of people will have fun with it. Oh, that makes me very excited because I mean I do I love this movie so much, but I mean I could always use more spooky elements, more horror elements in my movies. I mean I I I do love the carnage. That's just my my thing. So the way you describe this uh Christmas horror movie, I love I do love Christmas horror movies. It's funny. I hate Christmas. I really don't like the holiday itself. 
but I, I really tend to like Christmas horror movies for some reason, so very excited for that. So we will definitely be on the lookout for those films. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, like I said, this is a film that I enjoy so, so much. I'll be revisiting again in October, probably showing my girlfriend around Halloween time. It'll be in our Halloween marathon in there. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, what's your uh, social media? Where can the people find you? Um, oh, so Twitter, oh gosh, I don't even know. I think it's Nick Verso. I think it's just, yeah, the abbreviation of my name, Nick Verso on Twitter or on Instagram, I'm Versiverse, <laughs> which is my old DJing name. So you'll see me posting unhelpful, silly things there. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's all we can do in this, in this uh, crazy quarantine right now. You know, we got to keep ourselves sane in some fashion, but uh, I will link all those things in the description below, guys. But uh, thank you one more time to Nick Verso. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thanks for all your support. Of course. <laughs> ah, man. What a pleasant guy, huh? That Nick Verso. He, uh, he has such a... He has such a pleasant voice, and uh, he had such a calm demeanor. That was such a nice, laid-back conversation. I absolutely loved getting to talk to him about his film, Boys in the Trees. Um, you could tell it was a film that was obviously very personal to him. I also love directors that are very musically influenced, as I definitely take a lot of influence from music, and I make music and do other things. That's a big part of my personality as well, so it's cool getting to hear from a director, getting to make a film, and also include his music sensibilities within the film. And it's just also, I love this film so much. So if you guys haven't seen the film still by the end of this episode, and you just listened to this episode anyways, please check out Boys in the Trees. It's absolutely fantastic. And once again, when you have movies that are smaller in scale and maybe just didn't get the eyes in front of it that it should have, but you really love that film, fucking shout it out. Let the directors know. They really appreciate that stuff. Like, that's the biggest takeaway I take out of these episodes um, interviewing filmmakers because it's just, like, really cool to be able to tell them. Like, it, it's kind of funny, you know, like, when you do see them get kind of oddly uncomfortable with, like, taking just such a direct compliment. But I, I really like that because I feel like directors need that. I feel like, um, you know, they, they should hear those things. And I really appreciate getting to talk to Nick about his film. But uh, yeah, I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed doing this interview as well. I hope you guys are enjoying all the content I've been giving you guys this month. Tons of bonus episodes. No bonus episode this week, but make sure you guys are listening to the House of a Thousand Corpses episode. Um, I really loved the American Psycho Vampire's Kiss episode that we did last week. So make sure you guys are listening up on that. And if you guys uh, like the podcast, share it with somebody on Twitter. I would very much appreciate that. You know, tell someone about the podcast that you think would genuinely appreciate it. And um, yeah, you know, fucking pass the spooky shit around, all right? So that's going to go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes every Tuesday. Next week, I am talking a couple found footage movies with Johnny the Horror Hack. So be on the lookout for that. We're talking as above, so below. And Grave Encounters, um, Bloody Blunts on Twitter and Instagram with three O's. Until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>